0: The veil Walkers' History To the people of the bog, death is meant to be merely another part of the cycle. It is a natural progression, and not something to be feared. Yet as much as elders and leaders preach this doctrine, emboldening their followers to take heart, fear of and curiosity surrounding this great and final unknown has crept into the hearts of many. The veil walkers have learned not to ignore this human anxiety. Instead, we let it guide the work of generations. For there is no need to fear that which we can understand, and even control. The name of the first Veilwalker has long since passed beyond the veil, lost to the River of Death. She is known now only as the Lady of the Deep, So says the legend that it began when she lost someone close to her. Perhaps a child, a lover, or even a friend. The grief of that loss drove her to throw herself into the bog intending to drown. Instead, she sank and slipped through the veil, still living. Terrified, out of place, Clinging to life anew, she clawed her way back from those depths, possessed of a greater insight into a heretofore unseen world beyond. With the settling came the oldest practitioners among our clan, the Delvers. Unlike the witches of our age, early Delvers had little spiritual knowledge of the Vale. Their knowledge and practice came through experimentation through harsh trial and frequent error. Following in the footsteps of the Lady of the Deep, the Delvers would sink into the bog with naught but a rope tethering them to life, charting the river beneath the veil as best they could. Life as a Delver has always been perilous beyond compare. To assuage some measure of the risk they work in tandem, one to dive and one to serve as anchor in our mortal plane, drawing those who go beyond back. Owing to this, the bond between two delvers is one of implicit trust and closeness. During the learning, we refined our techniques and found our first great breakthrough in discovering the name of the guide that leads souls on in death. By its very nature, Nose has always held an unfathomable mastery over the veil crossing at will. By learning its name, we were able to pursue our craft through ritual and scholarly inquiry. We joined the other clans in a pursuit of knowledge and set out to enrich our magic and explore the depths of the veil. Over time, we learned to perceive the veil even from the surface and extend our influence past it from the safety of our own plane. We learned to speak with the dead and unearth the secrets they held but our influence was not solely over the realm of the dead. Before long, our talents caught the interests of the other clans. While the living always profess to honor death as another part of the cycle, under that veneer of reverence so often lurks the desire to forestall and subvert it. Friends and family of the fallen, unable to move past their grief, would employ a wanderer of our clan to reach loved ones and find solace. When this was not enough, and oh so frequently was it not, they would employ our more potent skills. Retrieving spirits from beyond the veil has always been controversial at best, forbidden at worst. While our magic is capable of drawing a spirit back from the grasp of death and returning it to an earthly form, Witches throughout our history have refused to do so, or agreed only under the provisions of a strict personal code. Such conviction tends to erode under the persistence of the wealthy and influential. Offerings mounted in proportion to the demand for us to return loved ones, and in the end even the most cautious Veilwalker has their price. As the breaking began fracturing the clans of the Bog, we held a unique position. Our skills were desired more than ever as the death tolls and need for soldiers rose. That need elevated our status, but it was also a blade that cut both ways. It was a fertile time for corruption to overtake the senses, and our witches scattered to all corners of the bog in search of their own fortunes. For every trustworthy and skilled practitioner who turned down a request, three more who lacked in scruples would appear to take advantage of the desperate or foolish. Their works were wanton, always leaving the bog worse for their passing through it. Some went so far as to become common thieves, making off in the night with iron or books. The worst would leave accompanied by an army of the fallen and possessed. As the breaking gave way to the weaving, we were scattered and broken. The charlatans among us had branded our clan with the stain of their misdeeds. Outsiders looked upon us with fear and loathing. Even within our ranks, the seeds of dissent and distrust had grown into deep divisions. Out of this chaos was born the Pale March. No more would the selfish or cruel run roughshod over witches with better judgment and no more would the ethics of our craft be left as a matter of "personal taste." The Pale March heralded an age of reform, codifying our magics and recruiting promising young prospects before they could be overtaken by avarice. This order now seeks to bring to heel those who would endanger our clan and the bog from within. Some decry its ways, casting it as a villainous inquisition who would demand complicity on pain of exile, but in the face of the alternative we are left with little choice. In this age of unity we cannot allow baser natures to consume us. The Veilwalkers must be whole again. The people. Culture. The people of the Veilwalkers were formed by two monoliths, the craggy rocks and caves of their homes, and the vale below. Their section of the bog is riddled with large limestone formations. Over the span of eons, this limestone was worn away from the inside, leaving caves stretching deep, almost to the vale. Vale walkers treasure these caves for the shelter they provide from the elements and other dangers. Caves provide a peaceful environment, free of distractions, where meditation comes easily and magic can be performed without distraction. Caves hold mysteries and secrets, much like the world of the dead. While not all veil Walkers dedicate their every waking moment to the craft, even the smallest child knows a verse to ward off spirits. The most promising few from any community will bear the burden of journeying through the Vale to protect their home from the dead, And unearth the secrets hidden beyond. Their work is performed alone or in small covens, and those in the land of the living can sense that they are near when eerie melodies and rhythms of their songs echo to the surface. While often considered unreasonably dangerous and old fashioned, delvers also still practice, diving deep into the mire to pass through the veil and explore the world beyond. It would, of course, be impossible for veil walkers to survive on meditation and contemplation alone. The backbone of any Veilwalker community is the family on the surface ensuring food is gathered and homes tended. Dedicated witches are somewhat of a mixed blessing and treated with mixed reactions. On one hand, skilled veil walkers bring prestige and protection to a community. Wandering veil walkers bring bog iron and other commodities in return for peddling their skills to other clans. On the other, practitioners are often feared and distrusted, as all too often witches break laws and edicts, prohibiting raising the dead and meddling with the natural order of the cycle. Names It is not uncommon for a veil walker to have multiple names. The first way all walkers are known is by their given name and community. Especially skilled witches will also take on an epithet that is earned or signifies their specialty. An example would be Malda Spiritbender of Bog's End. Delvers have a naming convention all their own. Due to the strong bond between a pair, they will often take on one another's names. If Elda and Fandor delve together, they might take the names Elda Fandor Bound and Fandor Elda Bound. SOCIETY. Life among the Vale Walkers is frequently egalitarian and falls into four main groups: the laity, dedicated practitioners, the errant walkers, and the Pale March. Due to the small sizes of communities, strict hierarchies are both unnecessary and often counterproductive. Decisions are often made by ad hoc committees, formed of a settlement's adults. Since communities are very small, it is easy for every walker to be heard. At night, when the spirits roam, adults take it in shifts to keep watch over their dwelling. Dedicated witches work on the outskirts of dwellings, often in caves or protective coves within the bog. Hollowed-out places are sacred to the veil walkers, and the veil is said to resonate most clearly there. In these sanctuaries, witches spend their lives studying and meditating on the veil. While they do not directly contribute to community stores, they earn their keep by keeping the dead at rest, or threatening not to. Every community is grateful for a responsible witch, and there are few who have not suffered under an immoral one. The errant walkers are practicing witches, who work among other clans within the bog. Even after the breaking gave way to the weaving, they are often regarded with fear and distrust. The Pale March has worked diligently to repair their reputation by ensuring that the errant are tallied and watched, and thanks to this diligence, instances of Walkers swindling or menacing other clans have all but disappeared. While they are not always trusted, the errant are invaluable to other clans, and their services bring great returns to both their dwellings and the Pale March. Lastly, but not to be discounted, the Pale March is the newest addition to the Veilwalkers' social order. It has two main purposes. As a community of like minded Veilwalkers, and as a governing body ensuring the proper practice of their magic. Before the Weaving, the Veilwalkers' practices were fractured and unregulated. The Pale March strives to codify ethical edicts, promoting research and scholarly work within their academic branches. Witches who refuse to conform to these new codes are pursued relentlessly by the Pale March's intercessors. Ghost Stories Fables of the Vale veil. Veil walkers saw early on the dangers of their craft, so nearly every community passes on tales of a witch consumed or driven mad by their dealings with the Vale. One of the most common is that of a young gifted child who lost a treasured pet. The child, unable to let go, reached past the veil to bring their pet back. Emboldened by success, They went on to return more and more creatures, until the day a parent passed on. When the child journeyed once more to find their parent's spirit, the weight of that old soul dragged them down. Unable to return, they were snared by the current beyond the veil, and carried so deep into death that even their screams could not be heard. Hauntings. Along with these tales of warning. Most communities will tell stories of the spirits and creatures that frequented their homesteads. Often attributed to their close connection to the Vale, the Valewalker territories have more than their fair share of visiting specters. Harmless or benevolent spirits are tolerated and even celebrated within communities, and tales of sightings are often shared over a drink or a campfire. Children seem to be especially sensitive to these shades, and it is not uncommon for a child to have a pale friend, as they are called. Some are even bound to trinkets, to keep company, serve a witch, or bolster spell work. Aside from the spirits of humans and animals lost, there are forces in the bog that were never alive at all, from the will-o'-the-wisps to objects that have absorbed the emotions of the magically potent. These sprites sometimes help lost travelers, but more often than not they only confuse or even trap the unprepared. The Undead Those returned from beyond the veil, take many forms, but the moment they inhabit once living flesh, they are doomed to an existence as an undead. Many times, these are wayward souls that found their own way back, or were returned by magical means. They may be mindless possessed corpses, wandering aimlessly or controlled like puppets, but those more desperate to cling to life may have minds and wills of their own. The most dangerous by far are witches who have returned from death, or overlong sojourns beyond the Vale. Still retaining the magic they learned in life, but steeped in the Vale's power, these are known to imprison souls on a whim, or menace entire villages single-handedly. Outsiders often accuse the Veilwalkers of subverting the cycle with their magic, but a Veilwalker has no means of turning the cycle back on their own. The closest their witches have ever managed is inducing on life, a vicious cycle of cursed subsistence. Undead must consume life to maintain their shell, but the more they strive to satiate their hunger, the more their cravings grow. In the end, their humanity is always lost to that desire always. The cycle will have its due. The structure. Community. Most Valewalker dwellings were founded on rocky terrain, where the clan pulled together farms and homesteads out of sheer force of will. Homes and stables are built from caves, natural or carved from the limestone, and are fitted with wooden fixtures like doors and canopies. Massive cave beetles are kept as beasts of burden, and protein typically comes from fisheries in self-contained cave pools. Cave-ripened cheeses are a delicacy, as are various mushrooms and snails. Bioluminescent reptiles serve to light the way in caves, but children often keep them as pets. Barren as Valewalker land is, dwellings rarely grow past a few dozen families at a time. The intractable nature of the terrain further ensures that on top of being small, Dwellings remain largely isolated. Even within dwellings, practitioners work in small groups. Delvers work in pairs, with a diver and an anchor, though individual pairs may join forces to form larger groups. Covens of spiritualists often contain one or two masters, and a handful of apprentices, though hermits are not uncommon. Much of their spiritual work occurs in caves below. With the dawn of the Pale March, there was a sense of the clan as a unified people with a purpose. The Pale March was able to provide some semblance of order and protection against witches who sought to abuse smaller dwellings for their own gain. They enforced a set of edicts for practicing witches to follow. Beyond that, they encouraged witches to come together to share their craft and grow. While communities frequently do not have much to offer the Pale March, Errant walkers will contribute dues from their work abroad to keep the order afloat. The Pale March operates out of regional offices on the outskirts of larger communities, where scholarly witches will study and intercessors will report. The largest of these offices outside of the dwelling Moor has become their de facto central office, and serves to keep the Pale March connected. From these offices, intercessors are dispatched to maintain order. Authority. Since Valewalker dwellings are small and spread out, authorities are largely decentralized. Dwellings are frequently small enough that it is easy and encouraged for all adults to participate in decision-making. Town gatherings are held at regular intervals, and emergency sessions can be called via a massive bell in the dwelling's center when urgent matters arise. During gatherings, all are welcome to make their case and speak their mind. Village and family elders are often respected within the community, but officially have no more of a voice than any other. The Pale March is the only real unified body within the Veilwalkers. It finds its roots as a reaction to the abuses and atrocities committed during the breaking, but grew into a movement where witches sought to codify both their practices and beliefs. Prior to its formation there was much disagreement as to the ethical limits of Veilwalker magic. Some witches confined their practice to the contemplation of the veil, while others pledged to use their magic to keep the dead at bay. With the dawn of the Pale March, most Veilwalkers agreed to a new set of laws, and expectations known simply as the Edicts. If anything, plenty of hermits and small covens pleaded for stricter regulations, Most witches welcomed not only the philosophical discourse, but also having consistent boundaries to operate within. Most, but not all. The Pale March found itself faced with a slew of renegade witches who had made their entire living preying on helpless communities. Especially at first, there were too many threats for the Pale March's official intercessors, They began hiring mercenaries and freelance hunters to help meet the demand with bounties that, while not equivalent to the rate at which intercessors were paid, still drew those who refused to fully join, on principle, into the fold. The inequality in pay and treatment alike between intercessors and freelancers has not gone unnoticed, and frequently causes tension between the two groups. The Work Economy the average veilwalker lives a simple, humble life. Their land is rocky and difficult to work, causing most dwellings to remain small, and most families to remain as subsistence farmers. Practicing witches within communities often work for meals over goods. The occasional bad actor will run protection schemes in communities, and even use their magic to menace villages that do not cooperate, but this has become increasingly risky with the pale march out in force. Errant walkers bring in much of the needed wealth and resources for both their home communities and the Pale March. They are watched closely by the Pale March in their work, but are also referred when someone comes to the Order for aid. When returning from a job, they contribute dues in proportion to the pay they received. While the Pale March is under no illusion that dues are honestly reported to them, they maintain a policy of salutary neglect on the matter. Technology. Veilwalkers have worked hard to develop various useful materials like rubber, glass, resins, silk, and adhesives. Over generations, they have refined their techniques to make strong but flexible rubber seals for their containers, and glass jars as durable as clay but clear like water. The most obvious Veilwalker contribution to technology is their diving equipment. Long gone are the days of free dives where Delvers would descend past the veil with nothing more than a rope. Thanks to their mastery of materials, the Delvers have developed airtight suits with masks made of clear glass. While not universally used, as some Delvers choose to rely on magic, diving suits allow even the most mundane veil Walker to participate in delving. Out of necessity, the Veilwalkers have worked on long-lasting light sources to pierce the darkness in the caverns below their settlements. Long stays within their limestone caves have made torches unrealistic, so Veilwalkers have adopted lamps for light. In order to be both cheap and sustainable, lamps are usually simple glass jars, or round bowls held in nets, stuffed full of fireflies, glowworms, or luminescent lichens that cast the caves in a pallid glow. Magic. Veilwalker magic has many manifestations, but always focuses on the veil and the realm of death beyond it. While the Pale March has been working to consolidate and standardize magic, various approaches exist, and individual communities often practice with their own flair. The oldest form of practice is delving, a nearly non magical technique of diving into the bog to physically pass through the veil. Due to its infamously dangerous nature, delvers have been careful and ingenious in developing techniques. Originally, this was done with a simple rope and sheer lung capacity, but delvers were eventually able to develop air hoses out of tree sap. Eventually, anchors discovered simple charms to maintain pockets of air around the heads of their paired delver. Another form of practice popular with hermits is meditation. Hermits or small groups of witches would venture into the deepest reaches of caves. They would spend hours at a time gazing into pools connected to the bog by deep networks of tunnels. According to witnesses, they would chant, causing the pools to glow with the magic of the veil. Steadily, the veil would draw close, until the witch could peer through and interact with the world of death directly. By far, the most common and famous technique is soul-singing. Despite the name, soul singers use all kinds of music to do their magic. Chimes, stringed instruments, and flutes are popular. But within a community, drum circles remain an old favorite. While errant walkers are rarely found without their instrument of choice, a soul singer's voice is always with them, contributing to the name and popular image. When practicing, soul singers will use music to resonate pools or buckets of water with the veil. As the music swells, a talented soul singer is able to journey past the Veil to find answers from the river of death that lays beyond. While great care must be taken in doing so, soul singers are also capable of calling a spirit forth from beyond the Veil, so long as their voice can reach it. Since death is such an impactful part of their magic, the veil walkers take their death rituals very seriously. After a service commemorating the Fallen, the grieving family goes out to collect stones to weigh down the pockets of their honored dead the body is then taken into a deep cavern and allowed to sink into the waters past the veil edicts after the chaos of the breaking the pale march rose to impose order on the veil walkers and their magic due to the magic's dangerous and easily abused nature These rules were necessary to ensure the safety of dwellings and build back up the reputation of Veilwalker witches abroad. Edicts are enforced by intercessors and are as follows. Honor your contracts as Veilwalker to both letter and spirit. Always send back what you call forth. Never bind a human soul to once-living flesh. Never travel or stay beyond the veil after sundown. Never give your name to a being from beyond the veil. Never show anything from beyond the veil explicit trust. Never enter a bargain with anything from beyond the veil. Never compel a harmless spirit to act against its will or nature. Never harm, or by inaction allow harm to come to, the veil. Any soul that has been beyond the veil for the span of three days is dead. Diplomacy. The Kin. The Pale March is painfully aware that during the breaking it was undead forces that did the bulk of the killing when it came to the Kin. Against our craft the Kin's numbers were a greater liability than a strength, becoming a constant source of reinforcement for wayward witches quick to the fight as they puppeteered the dead. True to form for such idiocy, these hordes quickly became a threat to innocence in our own dwellings, when the kin slew the witches at their fore and drove them back onto our land. Even generations later, the task of eradicating these selfsame hordes is incomplete. Now that we have some measure of organization, we are in a position to formally declare that we do not condone the actions taken against the kin in times of war. The kin have seemed to be receptive to this message, and initial overtures have met with promising results. We do not feel that either of us owes the other a debt. In the end, both our people suffered for the actions of a minority of fools who were beyond our control. But of all the clans, we anticipate that those willing to mummify and revive their honoured would-be dead may understand our ways the best. If we can play to our commonalities, and leverage the utility of the errant walkers, we may yet forge a lasting relationship with the kin. The Rooted The breaking was marred by atrocities from all sides, and while we have made every effort to reform, we have not forgotten the Rooted and the diseases they carried. If a Rooted plague carrier entered a dwelling, it frequently spelled death for all within. Bodies were left to rot in the sun, contrary to our rights, for we could not risk exposing further victims by retrieving them. To this day, there are dwellings filled with nothing but the roaming, angry spirits of the uninterred. Nevertheless, the Pale March has worked to mend this divide, reminding dissenters that in the rooted's time of need, rogue and guardian witches alike employed the undead to turn them away the lack of a central authority among the rooted has made opening talks with them a challenge. We can, and do, send our errant walkers and pale-march scholars as envoys to their glades, but are often met with an understandable hesitancy. Where the rooted revere the cycle above all, and are already at peace with death, there is little that we can offer them, and little they seem to wish from us. For now we visit, and listen, and do what we can. The watchers. Of all the clans, our relationship with the Watchers holds strongest. For much of the breaking, we and the Watchers simply ignored each other. They stayed in their fortified promontories, and we had no wish to chase them. This is not to say that our histories are completely without tarnish. It was Watchers who first spurred wandering witches to create the hordes that now still plague our lands, and there were times those same witches turned and decided that a walled tower on a hill Was a greater prize than anything their campaign could offer. But when considering all that the breaking was, even such incidents are comparatively minor. As the Pale March seeks to collaborate with other clans, the inherently academic nature of the Watchers resonates with their aim. We have begun working with the Watchers, sending scholars to share knowledge in their observatories. Together, They combine the memories of spirits past with the prophecies of Watcher Stargazers to mutual gain. Our intercessors hope to aid the Watchers in clearing fallen promontories in time, but as of yet, no plan exists by which to do so. The Wilders It is clear that for many roving witches during the Breaking, Wilder bands made an attractive target. Devoid of magic, never fortified, and unready for the onslaught that undead could bring, they were easy pickings for the shameless and greedy. It is unknown just the extent to which they were marauded during the breaking, but they have clearly learned that the best way to fight an undead is to slay its master. Even when we send errant watchers to fight undead, we must be very cautious if a wilder band is nearby. Should they mistake the hunter for a witch controlling the monsters, they will strike without mercy or hesitation. Thanks to the edicts, Our witches are no longer allowed to raise armies of undead to pursue the Wilders. This, if nothing else, seems to be a start. The Wilders do not frequent our lands, inhospitable as the terrain is, so the Pale March has asked errant walkers to reach out to them. Dangerous as the task sometimes proves, many have taken up the challenge. Those that meet with success have been able to engage with Wilder bands, trading what goods they can for Wilder crafts. Even so, progress is slow. The Wilders are not a clan the way that the others are. What views one band carries another surely will not. We are committed to showing them that in the weaving they have nothing to fear from us, but this is a work that will take time and patience. The Circle When this coven was first proposed, the Pale March leapt at the chance to join. We are all too aware of the temptations faced by solitary witches of our clan, and the devastation so often wrought by the unsupervised abuses of our magic. Such evils were just as often worked upon Valewalker dwellings as against any other clan. The other clans fear and mistrust us, and if we are the slightest bit honest with ourselves, we know exactly why. We have wicked works of generations to undo, and a most grotesque reputation to unmake. The Circle shares the aims of the Pale March in its emphasis on unity, and it is exactly the forum to show the rest of the bog the truth of who we are and what we refuse to be.